I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. I bet you're smart. Yeah, and you like to hold your own in the group chat. We can help you drop even more knowledge. My name is Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Izadi. We host a daily news podcast called Post Reports. Every weekday afternoon, Post Reports takes you inside an important and interesting story with the kind of reporting that you can only get from The Washington Post. You can listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. Go find it now and hit follow. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Plus. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. Hey, everybody. Hi, everyone. I'm Eli. And I'm Diana. How's everybody doing? Hope you're well. Yeah. Hope uh, that, you know, maybe the weather's cooling off a little bit, but it's been nice this week. True. A bit. It's rainy today. Mm-hmm. I don't know. What am I? I'm talking about the weather. Like, how much more know. awful small talky bullshit <laughs> can you get, you know? How about them Braves? Uh, who knows? I, you know, is it baseball? No, football just started. Yeah, right? Baseball, April, May, June, July, August, September. I know that from the Broadway musical Damn Yankees, and that's <laughs> where, where my sports knowledge comes from. Who says the arts and sports don't mix? <laughs> Look, uh, we're excited to be here. We're excited that you're here. We're excited that next Thursday, the 23rd, you can hear me on the podcast Daily Zeitgeist. Cool. Uh, the iHeartRadio podcast where we're going to talk about, you know, the daily zeitgeist. <laughs> <laughs> News and views. I can't tell you what we're going to talk about now because that would literally uh, defeat the whole purpose of the show, I guess. That's true. It's daily. Yeah. Uh, but super excited to go join those guys. And um, then the week after that, the 30th. Diana will be on as a guest yeah. on that show. So I'm double excited. whammy mm-hmm. on the Daily Zeitgeist. It's going to be awesome. I'm very excited. 
Me too. Yeah. Uh, ben Bolin was on today of Ridiculous History fame. Right, right. Uh, and uh, that was a great episode. So give him a listen. Yeah. I'm excited because Ridiculous History is the only other show I've ever hosted on, I've ever been a guest on before. So it's going to be cool to try out a whole other type of show. Yeah. Where you're just talking about the daily stuff and not anything from history. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> and Jack and Miles are awesome. Um, so I'm very excited to to go over there and, and honestly meet them. We haven't we haven't spoken yet. Right. So uh so listen up. Maybe we'll hate each other. I know. That'd Maybe it'll be a just crazy be episode. it'll turn into a screaming, raging fight. So tune in. Either way, it's gonna be good. <laughs> the ratings will go through the roof. Yes. I can't wait. Uh so keep an ear out for that. Today, we're here talking about, I, I, I'm, I love this story so much. <laughs> this is one of my favorites so far, so I hope we do right by it because it is a roller coaster. I mean, this guy, his life was, it was ups and downs. It was exciting. There's a little bit of horror in there. Yeah. Uh, there's <laughs> uh, some great comedy and some, uh, some passionate, honorable uh, you know, shit. So, <laughs> you know, um, shit. <laughs> so, we're talking about Governor Morris. Yes. Um, you've seen the crazy spelling of his name in the title of the episode. I know, right? Apparently, no one is 100% sure how he pronounced his name, but Abigail Adams wrote about him in her journal and she wrote Governor. N E E R. So, we're going to say Governor. Governor. Given year. Given year. Given year. Yeah. Yeah, I think he said year. Like she spelled it phonetically because it's not like they were wearing name tags. Right. Exactly. It's like, oh, that, that guy, Governor, came over and he, yeah. she just spelled it like she heard it. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. We're saying that was the the pronunciation we're going with. And it does mean governor in French, but he was never a governor. Right. <laughs> He's just governor. <laughs> we will get into his name and everything. Mm-hmm. He should be way more well known. He was a founding father. He wrote the preamble to the Constitution, and he was one of the most outspoken anti-slavery founders present at the Continental Congress. And that's just a few of his accomplishments. So why have we not heard of him? Well, apparently it's because, unlike the other founding fathers, Gouverneur lacked gravitas. Oh. He loved a good joke, he loved a good time, and he loved other men's wives. Uh (laughs) (laughs) So... uh, Yeah, hang on tight. This guy partied. (laughs) We're going to have fun. (laughs) Let us get right into this crazy story. Yes. Hey there, friends. Come listen well. Eli and Diana got some stories to tell. There's no matchmaking or romantic tips. It's just about ridiculous relationships. A lover might be any type of person at all. An abstract concept or a concrete wall. But if there's a story worth a second glance, we'll put it in a show ridiculous romance. A production of iHeartRadio. Gouverneur was born in 1752 in New York. His father is a wealthy landowning judge. He had like several gov- British governors in his family too. So they were like kind of American aristocracy, you could say, mm-hmm. if there was one. Um, his mother was the second wife. He got his name from her maiden name. So she is like a Huguenot. She ran, she escaped from England, so she could be a Protestant, basically, right. without dealing with all that <laughs> burning and the stake kind of stuff they were doing for a while. Um, and his father and his first wife had four kids, and his second, he and his second wife had three. So Governor had several half brothers and sisters, and brothers and sisters running right. around. Big family. Big family. 
And Governor was super smart. He enrolled in King's College, which is now Columbia University, oh. when he was only 12 years old. Damn. By 1771, he had a master's degree. Okay. And when he was, hang on, hang on. 1771, 1752, carry the n- six, 19 years old. He had a master's degree. A master's degree. degree. It took me 45 minutes to come up with the number 19 from that equation. <laughs> and I'm 30. Eighty-four plus thirty-six. That's true. Well, to be fair, he had about a little, a little over two hundred years worth of law and history to not learn that we now have to do it. So <laughs> I just want to throw that out yeah. there. <laughs> yeah, hey, it was so much easier to be smart back then. There's hardly anything to know. Harder and easier because you had to actually read books. Look, I love reading <laughs> books. There's just no. Uh, there's too much information now. Right. It's hard to pare down which back books then you read. were like, hey. uh... Here's here's history. There was uh, a couple of things we know about, but we haven't figured out the facts yet. Uh, and then a few thousand years happened, and we're here today. Boom. You're all, you're all cut here's up. Here's your, your master's, master's degree. degree. <laughs> <laughs> now we got to learn about Vietnam and shit. God. Hey, I know, right? Too much. If we do. Too much. Well, anyway, I think it was still hard <laughs> to get a master's degree when you were 19 but just not as hard as it is today. All right, we'll give him credit for it. We'll give him credit. So anyway, after he got his master's degree, he studied law with Judge William Smith. By 1775, he was accepted by the bar and practicing law fully. And then he was elected to represent his household in the New York Provincial Congress. But he and most of the other delegates wanted New York to be a state in a unified nation instead of just a colony. Most of his family were loyalists. They were thinking, no, British crown is the way to go. We want to stay part of that. We're good (laughs) under the rule of the king, apparently. And one of his half-brothers was a general in the British army, and his mother gave the estate to the Brits to use during the war. But Governor and another half-brother were betting on the Patriots, right? They said, no. We're we're going for independence. This is this is the way it's got to happen. They're like they're deflating the footballs. It's a sure thing. <laughs> oh, clever Patriots joke. It's a little sports joke for y'all. <laughs> I don't get to make those often, so I had to jump in. <laughs> it's also like a three-year-old sports joke, or more it's than that, maybe, right? Probably. Uh, I, I think it's many years because he's in Tampa now. Yeah. Anyway, whatever. <laughs> it's important to me that I got to make a sports reference. <laughs> So, Governor is heading up Deflate Gate, 1775, <laughs> and uh, so he's sided with the Patriots. And his mentor, Judge William Smith, was originally on the Patriots' side too. But then, once they started making noise about becoming a whole independent country, he was like, "Uh, that's enough for me, everybody. Uh, <laughs> no, this game's getting a little too crazy. I thought we were just gonna, you know, have a cool jacket that we all wore." <laughs> Uh, that we'd all just, I didn't think we were going to do a whole, like, war about it and, like, govern ourselves. That's, oh, it's a bit too much for me. Thank you. I'm out. <laughs> I don't like the taxes, but I don't want to do any extra work. Yeah, right. So this guy was called the weathercock throughout the revolution because nobody could ever figure out which side he was on. Whichever <laughs> the way the wind is blowing, mm-hmm, that's, this, that's the way this guy's cock is weathering. <laughs> So Governor is spending his formative years in the grip of, like, colonial politics. Mm. And, I mean, he's kind of rebelling not only against his king, 
you know, along with all these other revolutionaries, but also against his family because they were very different politically. Mm. Um, And he's got this front row seat to watch America decide to become itself, (laughs) basically. (laughs) Here's a quick recap of the causes of the Revolutionary War. Oh, yeah. We could fit that in. This is a very quick, I mean, the, you know, overview. Just to catch up our listeners in other countries, we've got a lot of you in Canada and Australia and England. So just to catch you guys up. And also all of our American <laughs> listeners who got a public education. Exactly. <laughs> like us. <laughs> like, I know, because I did. And I was like, you know, I think I know what the revolution was about. But now that I... <laughs> Uh, there was being some... quizzed on it. I don't think I do. <laughs> something about tea? Yeah. <laughs> I think. I know we were mad about the tea. I definitely remember that. <laughs> so basically what had happened was, was England helped America fight the French and Indian War. But that cost a lot of money, the crown particularly. And they felt that the colonies should help repay that debt. So they started heavily taxing the colonies in the late 1760s for tea, sugar, stamps. I mean, you know, everything. Okay, I've heard of this. Anything they could tax, they were like, we're taxing. Yeah, taxes. Without representation, you could say. Exactly, because the colonists were kind of like, okay, it's fine to me that the that parliament is making the laws from England, but only our elected representatives should have the right to tax us because they're here at home and they know what's going on yeah. around here in our economic situation. And, you know, England might not have such a good grasp of what the fuck's happening around here because yeah. they're far away. Uh-huh. Um, so they were kind of like originally just like, get rid of these taxes, let us tax ourselves, and we're fine to be a colony. Yeah. You know, not, not really... It wasn't really a big push to become our own country right away. Right. So there were just years of unrest where we had these protests. We were dumping tea in the harbor and stuff like that until there were the battles of Lexington and Concord in 1775. And that's when revolutionaries were kind of like, all right, the only way we're going to get our liberty is if we become our own country. So let's just go ahead and do the damn thing. Yeah. And of course, on July 4th, 1776, we signed the Declaration of Independence, and that was essentially an act of war. It dissolved all of our ties with the mother country and plunged us into war for seven years. Yeah. Governor was writing the Constitution for New York by 1777, along with John Jay and Robert Livingston. John Jay was apparently so anti-Catholic that he wanted language about not allowing Catholics to vote or hold office. He's He just couldn't stand Catholics. His mom was also a Huguenot who had fled Europe for religious prosecution. Basically, she she couldn't be a Protestant and the Catholics were giving her a hard time about that. So John Jay really took that to heart and was (laughs) like, yes, religious freedom sounds great, except for those goddamn Catholics. (laughs) As long Uh, as it's my religion. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Which sounds familiar. Or any of the ones that don't bother me very much. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. But Governor, who had a similar background, was like, no, 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 religious freedom and tolerance. That's what we're doing. We said it. We're doing it. That means everybody. You can't be tolerant of some people and not others and call it tolerance. That's not how tolerance works. (laughs) So they had that kind of little tit for tat there. But they both argued that the Constitution should have provisions recommending future legislatures to abolish slavery. So, in the words of Governor, every being who breathes the air of this state shall enjoy the privileges of a free man. The blog GovernorMorrisPapers.com explains that the language called for a delay because at the time, 
people thought liberating enslaved people in wartime would be dangerous. Mm-hmm. Sounds convenient. Yeah. Oh, no, we can't. Oh, get rid of all my free labor? Um, well, there's a war going on, so, you know, that might, uh, we don't want to cause any trouble for ourselves. Yeah, and I'm sure as soon as the war's over, we'll be more oh, yeah. than happy. Yeah. Oh, the war's over? Jeez, well, you know, we had a bad drought season this year, so maybe next year, maybe next year <laughs> I'll free, free all the enslaved people. Oh, the war's over? Don't worry, I'm sure we'll start another one any day now. <laughs> yeah, better hang on <laughs> yeah. to all these people. Just in case. So, uh, pro tip, Mm -hmm. there is no wrong time to stop (laughs) enslaving people. (laughs) Stop kicking the can down the road. If you suddenly realize that you've enslaved anybody and you think, oh, I should stop doing this, there's no world where the next thought in your head should be later. (laughs) (laughs) God, that's so true. Uh. Governor was appointed a delegate of the Continental Congress in 1778, and he was selected for a committee to oversee military reforms with George Washington. Hey, I've heard of that guy. Yeah, George friggin' Washington. (laughs) So he went to go see the Continental Army at their encampment in Valley Forge. Hey, I've heard of that place. I bet you heard of it because it was in an awful state of misery. Yes. Uh, And that's exactly what Governor saw. The supply lines were... All fucked up because of all of the fighting around Phil- going on around Philadelphia. And so the troops were often without any food or blankets or coats or provisions of any kind. Damn. Um, something like 2,000 soldiers died there of malnutrition or disease. Like, they didn't even make it to fighting. You know what I mean? Man. So they were going to let these guys run a country. Okay, come on. Right. And I think Governor kind of was like, oh, what? (laughs) Like, this is not the this is not what a successful army looks like. (laughs) I can tell you that right now. And he was like fully aghast. So he created substantial reforms in training and financing. He overhauled the supply lines and he ushered a bill through Congress that guaranteed half pay to the soldiers for seven years, without which they refused to fight. So he essentially saved the Continental Army. Wow. And he also cast the deciding vote that kept George Washington the commander in chief when he was in danger of being court-martialed and replaced. Wow. Which I never knew he was in danger of. But apparently at the time, he was kind of young and there were these older guys that were like, we should put somebody more, you know, old and clear headed in charge or whatever. But thankfully, they lost (laughs) that fight, partly because of Governor Morris. I got a question. Why wasn't this guy in Hamilton? Oh, my God. This is my only I'm like at Lin-Manuel Miranda. (laughs) I have to know why this guy was left out. And I can only imagine just because he has so much story that he deserves his own fucking musical. But. I mean, you could but, say that about many characters in Hamilton, I guess. To our good friend Lynn and, and friend of the show, you know, <laughs> shoot us an email. Let us know why. Mm-hmm. Or just give us a call, you know. Right. Let us know why you left Governor Morris out. Or just write like like a, a bonus track. Sure. Just a quick bonus track. Yeah. But Governor Morris was a nationalist, right? He wanted a nation of states united. He was in the Federalist Party. And that didn't win him any votes in New York because they wanted to stay you know, like a, an independent state, more or less. So he was defeated in the 1779 election. And after that, he was like, fine, screw New York. I'm, <laughs> I'm moving to Philadelphia. And he moved there. In 1780, in Philadelphia, he got 
tangled up in the wheels of a carriage. His leg got stuck, like, in the spokes. Sounds horrible. It broke his ankle really badly. Ouch. And his doctor, his usual guy, his his GP, <laughs> was out of town. So he went and saw some other quack. Oh, shit. Who decided, uh, took one look at it and was like, hey, uh, that leg's got to go. Hang on. Let me get my saw. Jeez. And he starts sawing away. Governor Morris is like, Ugh, I don't like this very much. He's taking it like a champ. When Governor's own doctor gets back into town, he comes in, takes a look at the leg, and is like, yeah, they didn't need to cut that off. <laughs> Which, come on, man. That is bad bedside manner. All right, the leg is gone, <laughs> yeah. okay? Like, why are you bringing this up now? If I ever, God forbid, lose a limb, nobody tell me I didn't need to do that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like... He should have just been like, oh, well, that was probably for the best. I mean, yeah. keep your shit to yourself, right. man. <laughs> right. So, At this oh, point. Oh, they shouldn't have cut my leg off? Well, in that case, I'll just grow it back. <laughs> Thanks, Doc. Cool. Brilliant. So, Governor was 28 years old, and he's got a peg leg. And when he was 14, also, he had upended, like, a kettle of boiling water on his arm, which left, like, pretty severe burns. Um... <laughs> This guy's a little clumsy. I know. <laughs> well, 14 to 28, that's a long time between terrible accidents. <laughs> yeah, but that's two more terrible limb-maiming accidents than I've had. <laughs> Not a good point. In 30, whatever we said, years. But he never complained about either of these circumstances. Uh, it never stopped him dancing, riding, and sailing as he had always done. Um, he is a very lighthearted guy. He's described as being like just super pragmatic and fair-minded and just had this great sense of humor that, I mean, even George Washington, who apparently was really like a, just a very serious guy, like <laughs> yeah. even he was like, yeah, governor makes me laugh. <laughs> <laughs> And he was also as ready to laugh at himself as he was ready to laugh at others, which certainly makes you more charming. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Just a pro tip. <laughs> <laughs> if you laugh at other people but you can't take it, you're probably not as funny as you think you are. <laughs> um, a friend apparently wrote to him that the loss of his leg should have a good effect on his morals because it would reduce his inclination to engage in, quote, the pleasures and dissipations of life into which young men are too apt to be led. Wow. And Governor Governor replied, You argue the matter so handsomely and point out so clearly the advantages of being without legs that I am almost tempted to part with the other. <laughs> wow. I love it. You know, the friend got the letter and was like, All right. Okay. <laughs> okay, Very Governor. Very clever. <laughs> <laughs> and the rumor at the time was that Governor had been running from an irate husband for when, he, when he broke his leg because Governor was a bit of a ladies' man. Mm -hmm. In fact, his friends had teased him about his frequent oblations to Venus, as they called it. <laughs> and John Jay told him after his carriage accident that he was, quote, Tempted to wish you had lost something else. Damn. Wow. He was like, if only they had taken your penis instead. If only that carriage wheel had ripped your dick off. <laughs> and he was like, what a friend. <laughs> <laughs> and also rumored that Governor particularly liked dissatisfied wives with dull or vicious husbands. Who doesn't? 
I mean, you know, and if you have a dull or vicious husband, you probably are pretty willing to I go mean, along. I mean, that's the thing. <laughs> hey, if you got a dull or vicious husband, well, particularly a vicious husband, get the hell out of get there. Get out. If you got a dull husband, can. like maybe, did you not know he was dull? Sometimes, you know, they trick you. Well, and of course, these ladies probably didn't have a lot of options. A lot of options or say in who they yeah. married sometimes. A lot, lot of men in this time, dull and or vicious oh, <laughs> at the seriously. same time. You know what? So, hey. Governor Morris, Morris, he's like the the Pied Piper of, <laughs> of, of sad wives. Sad wives. He's like, let me bring a little joy into your uh-huh. life. And they all line up and they follow him right out of town. <laughs> it, he was a tall, handsome, rich, successful, and funny guy. One Philadelphia bell wrote about him, Mr. Morris kept us in a perpetual smile. I love that. Yeah, perpetual I bet you smile. did. Hi, we're perpetual smile. This is <laughs> Athens. So yeah, it's a no wonder this guy is a favorite with women. But I one, know, well, just what I gotta say: tall, handsome, rich, successful, and funny are pretty much the five greatest things you can yeah. be in this whole world. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, he had a package going on here. I like to think I'm funny out of those five. You know. You're taller than me, so that's all that matters. Hey, that'll that counts. To right? me, you're tall. Great, great. It's the rich part we got to work on. <laughs> well, couldn't hurt. We're, I guess we're just leaving handsome and successful on the table. I think you're handsome, great, and we're thank pretty you. successful. <laughs> People are successful in different ways. We all measure it uh, in our own way. Sure. Okay. I I don't know where you're going with that. I, that was it. You were just oh, supposed okay. to say. Yes, that's great. Yes. Good point, Eli. You're very smart. <laughs> Which wasn't on the list. Oh, Sam. It's true he wasn't, but he was smart. But he was smart. One of his biographers, Richard Brookheiser, says that the real key to his success with women was that he liked them and he listened to them. Wow. So, I mean, forget Whoa. your forget your other five things you're talking about. Tall, handsome, rich, successful, funny, whatever. He liked them and he listened to them. That mm-hmm. is huge. Number one reason. Yeah. They liked him back. Yeah. That's all you need to do. Richard went on to say that when he told a male friend this, his friend was like, please don't publish that because you'll set the bar too high for the rest of us. Wow. Which I'm like, your friend sucks, Richard, because <laughs> that's a very low bar. I hope he was being sarcastic. <laughs> Listen to them. Like them? Oh, come on, man. You're asking too much. I can never like women. Listen to women? No, 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 no. They talk, and I kind of go into my happy place, (laughs) which is just a place where women aren't talking to me. (laughs) Oh, that guy sucks. Oh, I wanted to pull into Speculation Station. Oh, sure. Because the thing is that we don't know much about Governor's affairs at this time when he's a younger man mm-hmm. because he didn't keep a diary until later when he moved to France for a while. All we know is that they he kept them in a perpetual smile. smile <laughs> yes. And that he had oblations to Venus, whatever that mm-hmm. means. Um, but I did see in uh, another book about him, it's called Governor Morris, Author, Statesman, and Man of the World, that apparently in 1780, he was in love with a woman named Elizabeth Plater or Platter. And I don't know for sure, but she may be the wife of George Plater III, um, who was representing Maryland in the Continental Congress at that time. He would eventually become the sixth governor of Maryland. Mm. So maybe he was the irate husband who was chasing Governor out into the street. 
Oh. And made him get a peg leg. <laughs> wow. So anyway, I'm just guessing because, again, we don't know much about his early right. affairs. But um, Could have been any number of Right, because he probably had several. But I'm, I'm sure he, had, he was visiting several women at once. Uh, I don't, he doesn't sound like a single uh, monogamous like, guy at this time. Do you mean like at once? Like he yeah. had <laughs> Mrs. Plater, Mrs. Brookshire, Mrs. Washington, who knows, <laughs> all in Martha, his place. Martha, what are you time. doing? <laughs> no, no, no. I think he visited them separately. Uh, but... Okay. I'm, I think it happened. It's, I think if, if it if it happened ever, mm-hmm. right, it was Governor Morris. True, I would believe that. I would believe that. <laughs> I got Abigail, Martha, Elizabeth, Skyler. I got them all. All the There's ladies. A big, the continental orgy. <laughs> <laughs> it was a continental congress of a very hey. different kind. There we go. So while he was in Philadelphia, Governor started working in the finance world under Robert Morris. No relation, different Morris. Uh, but this guy was the superintendent of the new Office of Finance. Why the hell isn't this guy in Hamilton? Okay, I mean, we're okay. talking about money now, and I'm sorry. All right, all right, all right. <laughs> it's been a lot of time <laughs> grilling Lin-Manuel Miranda about <laughs> leaving this character out. But okay, so he's working with Robert Morris and together they worked to save America's finances by creating the Bank of North America and issuing stronger currencies. Governor also tried to pass a national tax through Congress, which got him on Washington's bad side for a while, actually, because it kind of caused some discord amongst the Continental Army officers. So they weren't they weren't liking that. Ruffled a few feathers. I mean, America is basically founded on not liking taxes. (laughs) That's like (laughs) the one thing we have in common with our founders, for sure. (laughs) Nobody wanted to pay that shit. Then, to his surprise, he was selected to be the delegate from Pennsylvania to the Constitutional Convention in 1787. Hmm. He hadn't even sought this appointment. They just were like, you there with the peg leg. (laughs) You should do this. No, you know what? I bet they were. I bet they did say like, um, hey. Uh, this guy's been sleeping with our wives. He's been sleeping with my wife. He's been sleeping with your wife? Yeah, he's been yeah, sleeping, he's sleeping with, my with my wife. He's sleeping with he's your, sleeping wife, your too? wife, Yeah, he's sleeping with my wife. But, but, he's sleeping with everyone. We gotta give this guy a job. <laughs> yeah. He's got too much free time on his hands. <laughs> yeah, let's get him, let's give him something to do besides my wife. <laughs> anyway, he had not been seeking this appointment, but they gave it to him and he totally threw himself into it. Not about to half-ass anything. This guy mm-hmm. seems like a real, just like, go with it. Like, oh, you want me to do this? Okay, sure, I'll completely do it to the best of my abilities yeah he like never sought elections elected uh, positions Mm -hmm. but he was like if i'm gonna serve i'm gonna serve yeah looks (laughs) i'm just kidding (laughs) (laughs) but even though he missed a month of meetings he gave 173 speeches which is more than any other member including james madison the chief architect of the constitution who we all know loves to give speeches (laughs) true (laughs) as a speech given fool He also made a lot of Southern enemies at the Constitutional Convention um, because he fought passionately against slavery. Um, The subject came up because of the three-fifths rule, the three-fifths compromise. Um, Compromise? With whom? Themselves and their own morals. Uh, The South was arguing (laughs) that, of course, enslaved people were property, right? They were not people. That's why they could be enslaved. 
But they were also kind of like, mm, let's count them as three-fifths of a person because then we'll have more of a population count in the census, and that means we'll have more representation in the House and Senate. And that means that whoever we send to the House and Senate will preserve slavery. Wow. So they were kind of like trying to game the system here and get more representation because more of their citizens were enslaved than were free. Governor was not about this bullshit at all. And he gave a blazing rebuttal, which I would like to just read to you in its entirety because it's fantastic. Um, so how about we go to a uh, new segment, the Patriotic Podium. <laughs> Upon what principles is it that the slaves shall be computed in the representation? Are they men? Then make them citizens and let them vote. Are they property? Why then is no other property included? The houses in Philadelphia are worth more than all the wretched slaves that cover the rice swamps of South Carolina. The admission of slaves into the representation, when fairly explained, comes to this. That the inhabitant of Georgia and South Carolina, who goes to the coast of Africa and in defiance of the most sacred laws of humanity, tears away his fellow creatures from their dearest connections and damns them to the most cruel bondages, shall have more votes in a government instituted for the protection of the rights of mankind than the citizen of Pennsylvania or New Jersey who views with laudable horror so nefarious a practice. Wow. That, them's fighting words. I mean, he was not buttering this up at all. No. He was basically like, how the fuck are we going to give more representation to people willing to do this to other human beings uh -huh. than the people who aren't? Yeah. Yeah. He's like, oh, so it's one of the other guys. Yeah. Do you, do you, are you enslaving human beings? Uh-huh. Or is my chair uh, uh, get a representative? Does my writing desk get a representative? Does that wheel that almost ripped my dick off get a representative? <laughs> You know, good for him for calling that shit out. You got to call that shit out when you see it. It's very true. You know, stand up and say something. And unequivocally, like, again, yeah. he's not beating around the bush. Right. He's not trying to be like, it's no. okay, then, like, something. He's like, fuck this whole thing. Yeah. Awful. Yeah. Not into it. Amazing. And he also said that if he threw a little shade on the South additionally by saying that if you traveled through the colonies, you could see the difference in the states with and without slavery. States like Jersey and Pennsylvania that forbade slavery were superior, beautiful. They were improved in like every way, <laughs> but, quote, proceed southwardly and every step you take through the great region of slaves presents a desert increasing with the increasing proportion of these wretched beings. Wow. So he was just like, your shit looks like shit. And you got all this free labor and it still looks like shit. <laughs> you got you got all these, you've 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 enslaved all these people to do all this work for you. And, uh, you know, and we're up here in the north, like doing it with our own two hands. And we mm -hmm. made it look a lot nicer than y'all did. And paying people to do it. Yeah. Like work to work. Yeah. yeah. To and build look how and much better it is. This was another thing that he actually split with his family on. His family had enslaved people for generations, but Governor did not. When his parents died, they bequeathed people to their kids, but none to Governor. I guess they knew. They were like, don't give them to old Govy boy over there because he's going to free them or some shit, you know. <laughs> uh, but later in his life, we did find that records show he did purchase two people, but he also immediately manumitted them. 
And instead, he had indentured contracts with them and he paid them wages. So unlike many of the founders, like James Madison and Thomas Jefferson, who, you know, love to talk about how bad slavery was. Oh, this is can't believe we're doing this. Mm-hmm. Oh, are we really enslaving people in this great new country where everyone's supposed to be free? You know, uh, you all should stop doing that. And I, I will right after you do you know, uh, <laughs> uh, in a minute. But Governor is out here calling out that nonsense mm-hmm. and practicing what he preached. Yeah. In 1785, he helped John Jay form the New York Manumission Society. And New York would eventually abolish slavery in 1799. The manumission, just to clarify, is different from abolition. Manumission is when enslavers voluntarily freed their slaves, whereas abolition was legally abolishing slavery, like the whole practice with government action. So kind of like, you know, if you're like, oh, don't worry, billionaires will just give their money away in (laughs) charities. And other people are like, how about we just tax them? (laughs) Because they don't always give their money away in charities. They clearly are not doing that. (laughs) During the Constitutional Convention... Despite all these back and forths he was having with the South over slavery and stuff like that, he was appointed to the Committee of Style, which was in charge of basically taking like the bullet points of the Constitution that the Committee of Detail would work out and giving it language, you know, turning it into a readable document. Oh, that's disappointing. It really sounded to me like he was in charge of like a continental fashion runway. I know, right? Like, and up next, Governor Morris uh, comes to the Committee of Style with his new look, uh, the peg leg. <laughs> the legless trousers. With two French lace cuffs, he looks amazing. And two French ladies on his side. All <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> Accurate. James Madison said, The finish given to the style and arrangement of the Constitution fairly belongs to the pen of Mr. Morris. A better choice could not have been made. Thanks, James Madison. Nice. He's just a very good writer, and everyone knew it. He was very good at crisp prose. Uh Uh-huh. Boy, I bet he would have had a great solo in Hamilton. (laughs) (laughs) I wish someone had thought of that before they wrote a whole play about the founders. Um, And he's, like, mostly working with pre-existing material. Again, he's got a bullet points of things. He's got to kind of turn into something worth Mm -hmm. reading. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and kind of inspiring, I guess, also <laughs> at the same time. So un- unlike Thomas Jefferson, who wrote, you know, the Declaration of Independence freehand, essentially. Right. But the preamble to the Constitution is entirely Governor's own construction. Um, this is where his nationalist views really came into play. And he was kind of just throwing his own agenda into the Constitution at this point. Mm-hmm. Because he was given a draft that began with... Like, we the people of Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, Georgia, you know, naming all the colonies separately Uh as separate independent states because that's how, you know, a lot of them were trying to arrange things. And Governor changed it to the words that we know, some of us know, (laughs) (laughs) we're we're vaguely familiar with, that we're vaguely familiar with and love today. We the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. Classic. I mean, he was like, 
United States, Union, United States. Right. Like, <laughs> he was just straight up like, maybe, we are together on this. Maybe he was just like, speculation station, maybe he was just like, I'm not listing out every goddamn colony every time. Or I got to write this by hand, you know. I'm not like Georgia, New York, South Carolina, North Carolina. God, we got two Carolinas now. Okay, keep going. It's like this is going to be four pages long before I get to the end of the preamble sure. if I have to list every colony every time. Like my hand's cramping. <laughs> Can I just shorten this? United States. Doesn't that sound good to everybody? We're doing it. We're doing it. Uh, apparently, I really pissed off like Patrick Henry and stuff that he did that. But, it but that he put United in, States in he, there? Yeah, because yeah. he, he was one of the ones who was like independent states or whatever. But yeah. it stayed in, didn't it? So Sure did. Take Sorry, that, Patrick, Patrick Henry. Henry. <laughs> we may know your name better than Governor Morris is today, but who's, whose work are we looking at? Mm -hmm. In 1789, Governor Morris went to France on business. And he was appointed Master Plenipotentiary, just basically an ambassador, to France by George Washington, the president, in 1791. And this is where he started keeping the diaries that biographers are now using to document his life. And here again, Gouverneur had a front row seat to history because he was right back in the thick of the French Revolution. But... I say before we jump into a whole other revolution, right. we take a little break, and uh, we'll be right back. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B cell ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. 
the 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May live on NFL Network ESPN2 and streaming on NFL Plus terms and conditions apply to NFL Plus visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more and we're back and it's the French Revolution Governor knew Marquis de Lafayette and several other French revolutionaries and he found them pleasant and well-read, but he kind of thought the French Revolution was doomed because none of the revolutionary elite knew how to set up or run a government. He liked these guys, but he clearly also thought they were kind of reaching a little further than their, their abilities, kind of biting off more than they could chew here, mm-hmm. and kind of, you know, taking a fistful from the cookie jar and they couldn't couldn't get it out. <laughs> like, oh, what is, I want this cookie. I want this cookie of liberté, but I have too many in my hand. I cannot take it out of the jar. Oh, no. Yeah, classic French problem. But (laughs) um, (laughs) we love you, France. Um, He wrote of Lafayette, there is no drawing the sound of a trumpet from a whistle. So good. (laughs) The shade. I mean, if you tweeted that. Oh, yeah. They would have been like, Governor Morris eviscerates Marquis de Lafayette in a letter to John Jay. (laughs) Lafayette dragged in letter. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the man's a whistle, and you can't get a trumpet noise out of that. That's, it says so much. It says so Just much. Just witch. calling someone a whistle to begin with is I like, know, right? I feel like you're dainty and you're delicate and you're lovely, but not strong and bold and trumpetous, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. So. You could never back up an orchestra. <laughs> Unlike the other ambassadors, he stayed in France through the bloodiest part of the revolution. And he was actually more sympathetic to Marie Antoinette than his American contemporaries. Richard Brookheiser, who wrote the biography about Gouverneur, said that because the French court was considered weak and effeminate, stacked with royal mistresses who really ran things, French revolutionary politics were pretty misogynistic. Which is why Marie Antoinette was particularly vilified. She had to deal with basically the 1790s version of revenge porn. Yeah, right? they had like pamphlets circulated yeah. of her naked, I get like naked drawings of Outrageous. her, like crazy situations they would put her in. Gross. Wait, you're telling me that a bunch of dudes saw a woman in power and uh, were absolutely horrendous about it? I know it's hard to grasp, but let's just suspend our disbelief All right. and try. All right, for this one unique <laughs> single moment in history where that ever happened once... I'll allow it. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, s- slash S, right? Is that the sarcasm note? <laughs> slash S, <laughs> Twitter, yes. Yeah. That's the one. <laughs> so Marie Antoinette actually had to deal with being accused of sexually abusing her son. There is absolutely no evidence that this ever happened, ever presented to anyone ever up to this day. Mm-hmm. But they said it anyway. So, of course, that made it true in a bunch of people's minds. To Gouverneur... Women were equals and to be respected, and he was pretty deferential and respectful to the queen and to the other women of the court, which his biographer points out that that in and of itself was a political statement in that environment. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, you treat her like a human being? Right. Uh, absolutely not, dude. Right. And he didn't even have to go out of his way. He was just right. like, I just like smiled at her at a party or something. Uh-huh. And people were like, what? Oh, you smiled at her? Lovely to see you, madam. Oh, rabble rage, <laughs> angry dicks, so mad. Right. 
I mean, not that Marie Antoinette didn't have some problems. Sure, sure, <laughs> but, but she, she, she was I think unfairly. As, yeah, we're yeah. now coming to realize that she kind of was pretty. She just got the short end of a stick. Yeah. Well, don't worry. We'll we'll do that episode. <laughs> it's coming. Mm. Governor's diaries are particularly coveted by historians because they provide a really detailed account and like really realistic account of what it was like to live in France during the terrors, you know, all the guillotinings and shit. Yeah. Um, like, for example, in one entry, he describes watching a bunch of revolutionaries parade ahead on a pike through the streets as he's like walking, you know, to a restaurant for dinner or something. Wow. And he's, you know, disgusted and yeah. really like, oh, what a people, like, my that, God. I mean, that's not like the Snoopy float, you know, right. going down Fifth Avenue. No. Very different parade. <laughs> I hope not. Very different Macy's Thanksgiving parade. <laughs> what if we just added that into the Macy's Thanksgiving parade? <laughs> Uh, yeah, so that, you know, he's like aghast at that and really taken aback and grossed out. But then a later entry, he talks about a guy coming to court to apply for damages to his, like, rock quarry because so many bodies had been thrown into the pit that it was full of corpses oh. and he couldn't get anyone to work it. Oh, my God. And he was talking about that really matter-of-factly, like, oh, just another day at the court. <laughs> so it was like, it just really shows kind of the... Uh, I guess normalization over a period of time of all that violence. So this guy just shows up and he's like, "Hey, um, will you please stop throwing bodies in my pit because that's where I work and no one will. I can't get anybody to go down there because it's fucking disgusting because it's full of dead bodies." Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's a legitimate. Uh, yeah. uh, yes. Now I can't court, earn my living. The court recognizes your complaint. Uh, we filed for a further motion to be evaluated. We'll get back to you in six to eight months. <laughs> uh, I'll be dead by then. Yes, that's the idea. <laughs> yeah, perfect. <laughs> that works out great for us. Should we just go ahead and cross this off now? <laughs> Merci. <laughs> One time, Gouverneur was cornered by revolutionaries who were threatening to hang him in the streets. And so he pulled off his peg leg and waved it in the air and told him he lost a limb fighting for liberty. <laughs> and at that point, the crowd starts cheering as he yells, Vive la revolution! <laughs> and of course, as we say, did not lose the peg leg fighting for liberty. He lost it running from an irate husband. <laughs> but the guy thinks quick, okay? He knows yeah. how to make the most of a moment. <laughs> I know. Uh, yes, revolution. <laughs> Viva la revolution. And they were all like, oh, yeah, 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 this yeah, guy yeah. gets it. This guy gets it. <laughs> Amazing. Incredible. Hero. But his diaries of this time are not just full of bloody revolution. There's also a bunch of sexy stuff. <laughs> he had a long affair with a novelist named Adelaide de Vlaut. Her husband was a count who was 30 years older than her, so probably at least dull, if not vicious as well. <laughs> they lived at the Louvre, which, of course, at the time was a palace housing the king and his court. And she already had a lover, a guy named Talleyrand. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you want to see Talleyrand's telly? <laughs> She's like, no, that's a terrible pickup line. <laughs> I know, right? But at the time, this guy was the Bishop of Autun, and a novice politician. Governor gave Talleyrand lots of advice about politics and writing constitutions and all that, leading Adelaide to say, well, my friend, you and I will govern France. And Governor would write dryly in his diary later, 
the kingdom is actually in much worse hands. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, if only. (laughs) But Adelaide must have really liked Gouverneur because she told him she wanted to marry him and move to America with him. Wow. And just leave her husband. Yeah. Scruises. Which partly might have been just because she's like, because, I mean, he's a count. So who knows what's going to happen. Yeah, that's true. In revolutionary times. Right. But she wasn't trying to marry Talleyrand, so, you know, uh-huh. I just think she really liked the governor. But he refused her. He, I don't think he was ready to get married, I guess. Mm-hmm. Or maybe he also thought it was a terrible idea diplomatically, like run off with <laughs> this other man's wife. I don't well. know. But he did not refuse to meet her for sex, <laughs> whatever <laughs> she liked. Um, and they liked a risk, okay? So in his diary, he used the word celebrate as his code word for when he had sex. Oh, just like uh, just like Putnam. Yeah. Just he, like Dorothy. Yeah, a lot of codes for sex in historic yeah. diaries. Yeah. Where it's now, it's like, you know, you get somebody's diary now, right. if they even have one. It's not even. It's just on their, you know, Instagram or they'll tweet <laughs> like, Talleyrand ate my ass last night. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> they were like, walk of shame from Talleyrand's house. Yeah. Uh, So, in his diary, he wrote, Go to the Louvre. We take the chance of interruption and celebrate in the passage while the husband is below. Visitors are hourly expected. The doors are all open. Wow. (laughs) So, they were like, please stumble in on me. Wow. And they also did it in carriages. And they did it at this convent where her old governess lived. (laughs) So, it was like... Exhibitionists. Uh, yeah, right? Yeah. They were like, wherever, whenever, whatever. <laughs> Damn. But of course, it's a revolution, and there's not a bunch of... It's not always sunshine and rainbows and getting screwed in the Louvre. True. One day, the Count, Adelaide's husband, was guillotined. As and, expected. Uh, yeah. And Adelaide fled the country. She later married a Portuguese diplomat who treated her very well. So we're happy Adelaide got out. But a good life. Great job, Adelaide. Yes. Now, America had demanded that France recall their ambassador uh, who had insulted George Washington and tried to meddle in American politics. So France turned around and was like, "Okay, fine, we'll take our ambassador back. But your man, governor, has got to go. Giving him the boot. (laughs) And so he returned to America in 1799. But he had made enough money in Paris to buy back his family's estate from his half-brother. Nice. Yeah. Good job. He was in the Senate for the Federalist Party from 1800 until 1803 when he was defeated in election. Like, basically, this is around the time the Federalist Party completely, like, dissolved, essentially. So that's probably what happened there. But also in 1803, he started having an affair with another wealthy novelist and poet, Sarah Apthorpe Morton. And she told him all about this scandal that had happened in her life in 1788 when her husband seduced her sister, Frances, who gave birth to his child and then killed herself with laudanum when the affair became public. Crazy shit. I mean, that's a crazy story. So she tells him, my sister slept with my husband, Mm -hmm. had a baby, and then killed herself when everybody found out about it. Yeah. Dark. Yeah, right? And he listened, guys. He listened know, to that right? story, okay? <laughs> he didn't judge. Right? He wasn't like, well, you're sullied. No, not at all. No, he was like, wow, I'm so sorry that happened to you. You know, your emotions are valid. Mm-hmm. And uh, and whatever I can do to support you, I'm here for. 
Yeah. I will keep and sleeping with you if you like. <laughs> she thought yeah. of something you could do <laughs> to support her. <laughs> no. <laughs> I've got some ideas. Yeah, like Sarah and her husband somehow reconciled after that, which oh. I just find like, wow, like it's one thing to forgive an affair, even if there's a kid. Right. But the fact that your sister killed herself over it is just right. kind of a lot. I mean, we don't, I don't know. Maybe the dude was equally devastated, it's you know, true. tried to stop this from happening, tried mm-hmm. to help her. Maybe the sister like had severe depression. We don't know. We don't know anything. We don't know. Uh, much, well, not anything, but we don't know much. Yeah. Um, but even though she did forgive him and they were on pretty good terms, it did not stop her from having an affair yeah. 15 years later <laughs> with our man, Governor, um, which I was like, did it take her 15 years to find a guy she liked enough to be like, finally, I can pay back that debt. You know what I mean? <laughs> or she just like she was like, no, I'm not going to sink to his level. Mm-hmm. And then she met Governor and was like. Okay, I'll sink a little. I'll sink a little bit. <laughs> this guy listens to me? I know, right? We have, like, conversations. And the things he can do with that peg leg. <laughs> <you know? laughs> okay, but in 1804, Governor's good friend, Alexander Hamilton of Broadway fame. <laughs> you might have heard of him. He was shot in his famous duel with Aaron Burr, sir. It's insane. That Governor Morris is not in the Alexander Hamilton musical. He was Hamilton's best friend, according to Alexander Hamilton's wife, Elizabeth Schuyler. Governor gave Hamilton's eulogy, during which he broke down in tears. Also, he was the one who realized that the Hamilton family finances were in, like, terrible disarray and dire trouble. And he took it all into his own hands, settled Hamilton's debts, and created a trust so Eliza and the children would have some money to live on. So I ask you again, Lin-Manuel Miranda, I know you're listening. Why the hell is Governor Morris not number three on that list of on that cast list? I mean, outrage. I mean, all I can figure is like you said, Diana, like it's just too much story. He was like, if I take out this is a five act play with Governor Morris, I can get it down to two if I remove him. So maybe it was just that. (laughs) I'm just saying, Lin-Manuel, think about like a follow up. With something. Governor, because he deserves a show. Something. This I, guy. I'm thinking, we're reading through this, and in my mind, I'm like constantly thinking, usually of our, our, our most exciting stories, I'm like thinking about how the movie would play out. Mm-hmm. This one, I'm like, I'm thinking a five-season, ten-episode series. I think so, too. You, right? you would need like a Tudors type show, yes. but only about Governor and all of these revolutions he was a part of. Oh, my God. Amazing. Season three is like when he goes to France. <laughs> right. You know, you got Marie Antoinette in there. God, perfect. Uh, I love it. All right. Well, he's not in the Hamilton musical, and we can't change that. And it's bullshit. <laughs> whatever. In 1809, Gavinier was 57 years old. On Christmas Day, he hosted a small dinner party with just a few friends. Um, and apparently... According to his contemporaries at the time, he became one of the best chefs in the country after his retirement from politics. Wow. Okay. Dinner would start at like 4 p.m. And they would have these long conversations and he had great wine. And like, I mean, this guy, this guy was great. I mean, he was so fun. I would love to go to one of his dinner parties and let him cook dinner for me I feel like and tell me all about. Have an affair with him too. I mean, this Probably. guy is like, yeah, I, I wouldn't blame you. <laughs> Probably. He listens. He likes you. Uh-huh. He, he, he's an amazing cook. I mean, 
I mean, you're a great cook, and I love that about you. Well, thank you. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you for cooking, because <laughs> well. I hate it. <laughs> so anyway, he has this dinner party, and I'm sure the guests are all excited because they're going to have this dope meal by Governor Morris, one uh-huh. of the best chefs in the country. And in his diary, he wrote, I marry this day Anne Carey Randolph. What? No small surprise to my guests. <laughs> Surprise! <laughs> so had like an April and Andy from Parks and Rec surprise <laughs> wedding at a party. Oh, or like Steve Martin. Yeah, uh, Steve in our Martin. in our Steve Martin episode, That's go back right. and listen to Steve Martin and the Dating Game, mm-hmm. uh, where he he threw a surprise wedding for right. his party with like Tom Hanks and people there. Right, and it, he, he married an Anne too, didn't he? It wasn't Anne. Yeah, wow. Anne Anne's for days. Boy, if you're an Anne and you didn't get a surprise celebrity wedding. Uh, in you your thirties. In your thirties, <laughs> then then check in because you deserve it. Right. It's an established it's rule. A thing that Anne's get. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, the guy who was banging unhappy wives in multiple countries was finally getting a wife of his own. Um, and in true governor fashion, he did not pick anybody boring because mm-hmm. Anne had a crazy story of her own. Oh, Anne, Anne Carrie Randolph. She was the daughter of a very powerful Virginia planting family. She had 12 siblings. When she was young, her mother died, and her father remarried a rich friend's daughter, apparently despite this girl's objections. Mm. The, the, The wife. Yeah. The girl he was marrying. She was about Anne's age, which was around 16 years old. Ugh. That might have been one of her objections. Yeah. If I can guess. Yeah, right? Anne herself had a lot of suitors, and she was described by her biographer, Alan Pell Crawford, as, quote, a fetching girl with a little upturned nose, a gift for self-dramatization, remarkably little in the way of discretion, and oodles of sex appeal. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like a recipe for Governor Morris. Right. (laughs) Um, Anne and her stepmother, who was 16, did not get along. Probably because they were both 16. Yeah, two two 16-year-old girls in the same house never get along. How weird. And, and like, her stepmother had to, like, probably take precedence, you know, right. in household matters and shit like a mother would. And it's yeah. like, you're my age. You're my age, and I've been here longer. Yeah. So don't start talking to me about how things need to be. A lot of us have seen Legally Blonde, and we know what happens when you marry someone your daughter's age. <laughs> she gets shot, anyway. So when Anne was around 19, she got the hell out of that house, and she went to live with her sister, Judith. And Judith's husband and cousin. Right. <laughs> like, not her husband and her cousin. Her husband was her cousin, <laughs> Richard Randolph. It's a, it's nice when you marry somebody and you don't have to change your last name, <laughs> right? <laughs> We're all Randolphs here. It's fine. <laughs> oh, I can't wait. I'm, I'm Judith Randolph, and I can't wait to be <laughs> Judith Randolph. Mrs. Judith Randolph. I think she just wrote her own name in her oh. notebook <laughs> all the time. Yep. People didn't think anything of it. They were just like, why are you writing your name over and over again? She's like, one day. (laughs) (laughs) So their plantation was called Bizarre. B-I-Z-A-R-R-E. And apparently nobody knows why it was called Bizarre. Like it might be from the French word Bizarre, Bizarre, which means more like valorous. But the Randolphs never said. So maybe they were just like, this is just a weird ass house. We got a girl who's Stepmother is her own age. We got a, a lady married her cousin. This place is bizarre. <laughs> but nobody knows. And people thought Anne and Richard were a little too fond of each other. 
And Anne started to gain a little weight, like inexplicably. And that kind of started to lead to some speculation, some rumors that they were lovers. She and her brother-in-law slash (laughs) cousin-in-law? Slash cousin. That was her cousin, too. Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah, I guess they were already (laughs) cousins. they're all cousins. Oh, man. (laughs) A lot of of Giuliani action going on around here. Again, we're all Randolphs here. That might be a problem. So anyway, all three of them went on a visit to see some friends at this different plantation about 30 miles down the road in October of 1792. And during that night, Anne screamed and woke up much of the household. A servant said she was ill and needed some laudanum. And they tried to give it to her, but Richard was in Anne's room at this time and he wouldn't let anybody in. So he gave it to her. At some point, someone, and everyone assumed that it was Richard, but they didn't see him. Um, Somebody, like, hustled down the stairs real fast and went outside and then came back in shortly thereafter and came back up the stairs. Okay. And in the morning, bloodstains were found on Anne's pillowcase and on the stairs. All her bedding was gone. And possibly one of the enslaved people on the plantation maybe found the body of a dead white baby in the trash. Oh. Uh, which seemed to have been stillborn or or killed upon being born, but it was probably like a little bit on the small side. Mm. Now, rumors started circulating, of course, all over Virginia that Richard and Anne had been secret lovers and that Richard had killed the baby because it was evidence of their affair. Crazy rumor. I mean, that's fucked up. That's that's a it's quite a conclusion to jump to. Mm-hmm. And charges were brought against Richard in 1793. He hired the two most powerful criminal attorneys in the country at the time, Patrick Henry and John Marshall. Anne's close friend and cousin, Martha Jefferson Randolph, testified that she had given Anne some gum, guayacam, which she thought could produce an abortion. But since Virginia law prohibited enslaved people from testifying, the story about the body in the trash was never heard. And Richard was acquitted. And Anne, Judith, and Richard all went back to Bazaar. They sure did. All right. I feel like they were in Bazaar the whole time, but (laughs) they went back to their home. But the damage was done. Anne was being called the Jezebel of the Old Dominion. Which, I mean, sick burn, guys. Like, come on. Oh, my Tighten God. up your insults. And all these, like, ribald jokes were made about Richard in taverns all over the state. Basically, these guys are taking a lot of heat, mm-hmm. um, no matter what the outcome of the trial was. And then in 1796, the healthy 26-year-old Richard was suddenly stricken with a mysterious fever that turned into delirium and he dropped dead. And Anne and Judith's relationship, of course, it kind of soured over the years. (laughs) Judith was letting it burn into her brain that maybe Anne had slept with her husband and all this. Um, And Anne was feeling that pain because her sister was starting to treat her more and more like a servant and Mm. probably just being really cutting and, and petty about things. Right. And Richard's brother, John Randolph, decided that Anne had poisoned Richard and killed him. Wow. So he commenced a lifelong campaign against her. 
And in 1805, he told her she's no longer welcome at Bazaar. He basically accused her of being a slut and was just like, you've been taking liberties all over the estate, like you're some kind of tavern wench wow. or something. Just some mean shit, you know? Yeah. And he was like, get the fuck out. Man, she needs she needs a friend. She needs a guy who will like her and, and listen, listen to, to her. <laughs> so when she was 31, she's unmarried and penniless, and she went back to her family's plantation, Tuckahoe, which was now completely abandoned. Like, she goes back to this ghost house and had to, like, break off aspen boughs to make a pallet to sleep on. Mm. Just sleeping on pine needles. And she would just move from plantation to plantation until she finally took a room with a couple who ran kind of a disreputable riverfront amusement park in Richmond, Virginia. So she's literally living with the carnies at this point. <laughs> okay. And John Randolph would claim that she supported herself with prostitution. Again, we can't trust him because he was saying a lot of mean shit yeah. about Anne that was not based yeah. in fact. And as we have learned through many of our episodes, a lot of recorded history is recorded as an attack. Yeah. You know, that's kind of how you went after people for a long time and still to this day. Mm -hmm. So it was a few hard years for Anne until one day she received a visit from her father's old friend, Governor Morris. There he is. They had met once at Tuckahoe years before. And now Governor was like, hey, you seem like you're down on your luck. (laughs) Seem like a nice girl. You know what? I'm going to hire you as my housekeeper. He says his conduct is going to be proper and respectful. He's, I'm going to pay you a good wage. But our relationship would be as friends. And I, th- I just think that's so kind because it's very hard to fall from wealth to penury the way that she has. She has no, f- I mean, again, she's totally friendless. She's yeah. unmarried. She's got nobody to protect her. She's yeah. got no money. Uh-huh. And... You know, I think it's very easy to feel patronized by your other, like your old friends from when you were rich. Right, right. Um, especially if they're trying to help you and make you feel like charity case or something yeah, like that. Sure. So I just think it's cool that he was like, "We're friends. I'm going to pay you a wage because you know I have to. It's a job. Like, right. got to keep up appearances here. But we're friends, and I really just want to help you out." That's so cool. This guy's the best. I know, right? <laughs> And a few months later, they would marry in this surprise Christmas Day ceremony. (laughs) And Anne wore the plain, worn housekeeper's dress she always wore for it, which they both loved. (laughs) Anne Anne liked it because she felt like it showed how grateful she was for all his many kindnesses to her over the years. Uh Uh-huh. And Governor liked it probably because it added to the shock of his guests that he was marrying his housekeeper. He's like, I didn't even give her a new dress to wear. (laughs) We just doing this right now. She's like, you know what? Don't buy me a fancy dress. I just want to wear the one that I have. And he's like, yeah, that's good. I like that. (laughs) Ooh, they're going to hate that. And no surprise, the marriage pissed off quite a few people. All of Governor's nieces and nephews were expecting to inherit. They're like, this guy, he's always sleeping around. He's banging everybody left and right. He's got, he's never going to settle down. Mm-mm. He's got, probably going to die early of like VD or something. <laughs> and we're going to inherit all his shit. Can't wait. He made a ton of money in Paris. Mm-hmm. Yes, this is great for us. And then he gets married and they're like, uh, wait a minute, what? He's marrying a young woman who he could probably have a kid with and suddenly we won't inherit his shit anymore? Unacceptable. Governor had written... <laughs> If I had married a rich woman of 70, 
the world might think it wiser than to take one half that age without a farthing. And if the world were to live with my wife, I should certainly have consulted its taste. But as that happens not to be the case, I thought I might, without offending others, endeavor to suit myself and look rather into the head and heart than into the pocket. <laughs> Burn! It's so good. The roasting that's happening. It's so good. Oh, everybody thinks that I should have married a rich lady instead? Well, uh, if everybody <laughs> was <laughs> was marrying my wife, I definitely would have asked them, mm-hmm. but I didn't because they're not. Yeah, I don't give a fuck what you so think. So get bent. <laughs> And just because you want my money, like, oh, okay, yeah, let me give a fuck what you think. Like, no, I don't think so. This guy's amazing. Of course, Anne regained some social prominence because of her marriage to this rich, successful guy, Governor. And she was with him when he advocated for the building of the Erie Canal. Hey, I know that. Hey, we all know about the Erie Canal, right? I've been to the Erie Canal. I grew up pretty close to the Erie Canal. Well, there you go. No, we went and saw it. It's super cool. Yeah. And you had to build it. <laughs> a feat of ingenuity also, might I yeah. add. Yes. Canals, he... man. We've talked about that before. Canals. Canals. We take them for granted, but they are they are pretty ingenious. Well, and this one was particularly Governor's brainchild. Like, he was talking about it at a dinner yeah. with all these New York politicians. Like, uh-huh. I have a dream one day that the freaking <laughs> waters of the Hudson will mix with these other waters. Hey. And they were like, how? And he's like, well, I don't know. Rivers do it. Why can't we just build one of those? <laughs> I mean, basically. And they were like, what? And just blown away. And it just became this big passion project for several men because of Governor. And in the whole song, I've got a mule. Her name is Sal. Mm-hmm. 15 years on the Erie Canal. Never once mentioned Not his mentioned. name. So musicians of the world, please stop leaving Governor Morris out of I your mean. out of your stories. He was chairman of the Erie Canal Commission from 1810 to 1813. And in 1811, he was one of three men to lay out the grid plan for Manhattan. So he fully shaped New York. Like he was writing the Constitution years ago. Now he's building the canal and building the street map. I mean, essentially. Why isn't this guy on a bill, like a monetary bill? Exactly. What a cool founding father, too, because he actually was not a slave owner as well. Yep. Anyway, he also passionately opposed the War of 1812. He thought it was immoral and unwinnable. Um, He called President James Madison a sexless drunkard. (laughs) (laughs) Just like, I don't think that either of those really come into play necessarily about the War of 1812, but I thought it was funny. He's like, I'm just sliding this in there. <laughs> just this is wanted... just a twist of the knife. <laughs> to add insult to my insults. Right. Uh, he even cheered on Federalists who wanted to secede from the country. But by 1816, he was telling them not to contest that year's election saying, if our country be delivered, what does it signify whether those who save it wear a federal or a democratic cloak? Wow. Which I think just says a lot about his personality. I mean, this is a person who he was willing to work towards some really big goals, but right. he did not really care about the glory. Right. He's not putting his name all over a bunch of shit. He's not seeking office. You know, we don't know, you know, his name's not on the Erie Canal. Right. But he's just like, I just want to get the work done. I don't really give a fuck if y'all know me or not. And if I'm wrong or if I lose, if the thing happens, I'm happy. I don't, yeah. it doesn't have to be me that does it. We're all trying to get the same thing done here. Mm-hmm. Got different ways of doing it. Yeah. Maybe Lin-Manuel Miranda was like, I could tell that he doesn't want the glory. <laughs> so I'm not going to write him in. Just to be respectful. <laughs> 
I don't respect it. All right. Um, <laughs> I say that we go call Lynn and ask him about it. Mm-hmm. And while we do that, we'll give you a quick commercial break. And Sounds we'll be right good. back. Yeah. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release, presented by Verizon, coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. I bet you're smart. Yeah, and you like to hold your own in the group chat. We can help you drop even more knowledge. My name is Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. We host a daily news podcast called Post Reports. Every weekday afternoon, Post Reports takes you inside an important and interesting story with the kind of reporting that you can only get from The Washington Post. You can listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. Go find it now and hit follow. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Welcome back to the show, everyone. In February of 1813, Anne gave birth to Governor Morris II. Or Junior? I guess that was like if you were an aristocrat. Like the second sounds fancier than Junior. Right. Junior. 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 And this would have been Governor's only child. Now, the Morris nieces and nephews are even more pissed because suddenly there's an official heir to Governor's fortune. Mm -hmm. John Randolph who by this time is living in Roanoke between congressional sessions, reading Byron, taking opium, and obsessed with his vendetta against Anne, wrote a letter that got circulated around everywhere, dredging up the old scandal and adding some new ones in as well. She'd killed her child, she killed his brother, she was plotting to kill Governor Morris, and John ordered her off the plantation because she took enslaved people as lovers. Like, all these just like... Well, this will cause some outrage. This will really dampen her rep. Like, he was really out there on mm-hmm. a on a total smear campaign against Anne. Totally. Slanderous. Yes. And he just wanted Gavinier to leave her. He just wanted uh-huh. to wreck their marriage. Yep. 
But Anne struck back with a letter of her own that was even more widely circulated, particularly among John Randolph's political enemies. And all in all, she came out ahead on that one. People were way more likely to take Anne's side. Yeah, she basically just rebutted every single uh-huh. point one by one. And she was like, no, I was engaged to my other cousin who died in <laughs> 1792. Yes. I was pregnant with his child. It was stillborn. Why don't you go fuck yourself? Uh-huh. Like She was just like, boom, boom, boom. Not having it. Yeah. Good for you, Anne. Stand up for yourself. And yeah, even if any of that had been true, I'm not sure that Gouverneur would have left Anne because it seems that they were really, truly in love. Um, He was in Stillwater, where much of the Battle of Saratoga was being fought in 1813 when his son was born. So he sent Anne this cute little poem. Which takes us on down to Poetry Corner, where we're going to hear this beautiful little love poem from Gouverneur Morris. Kiss for me, my love, our charming boy. I long to taste again the joy of pressing to the father's chest the son and mother. Be they blessed with all which bounteous heaven can grant. And if among us one must want of bliss, be mine the scanty lot. Your happiness may no dark spot of gloomy woe or piercing pain or melancholy ever stain. It's a simple little poem, but it's nice. That's cute. It's sweet. That's sweet. You know? Yeah. I feel the love in that poem. <laughs> Two years after Governor's death, Anne would send this poem to Columbia University's magazine, telling them that after the poem was written, quote, Mr. Morris and myself were never absent from each other except for one night. Richard Brookheiser believes that she wanted to show the rest of the world a side of Gouverneur that only his close friends and family knew about. Near the end of his own life, he wrote, I lead a quiet and more than most of my fellow mortals, happy life. The woman to whom I am married has much genius, has been well educated, and possesses, with an affectionate temper, industry and love of order. Our little boy grows finely and is generally admired. You may then opening your mind's eye, behold your friend, as he descends with tottering steps the bottom of life's hill, supported by a kind companion, a tender female friend, and cheered by a little prattler who bids fair, if God shall spare his life, to fill in due time the space his father leaves. Aw, see, I mean... God, this guy and his words. So good. He should have written, like, the Constitution or something. (laughs) (laughs) But I think that says a lot. He he clearly really enjoyed talking with her. They had yeah. a lot of common. I mean, this wasn't just like a pity marriage or right, something. Right, right. Um, and I don't think he was cheating on her either, which says a lot yeah, about Governor. Right. I mean, of course, you know, he's older now. So right, maybe right, it's harder right. to, to pull, you know what I'm saying? Oop. But <laughs> but it still, I think, says a lot that he was so loyal definitely, to her and stuff. Definitely. But by 1816, Governor's health had begun to fail. Oh, God. He had gout, which was messing with his organs. Mm-hmm. By, by the age of 64, he was bedridden at his family home in Morrisania, New York, which is now the Bronx. And he experimented with lots of remedies. He did enemas, bloodletting, uh. laudanum, herbal infusion. I mean, you know, he was like, give me elderberry extract, uh, ivermectin, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> whatever it was out, he was trying whatever. Okay. <laughs> They didn't have they didn't have like better medical science back then. They they just had to take whatever they could. Right, right, right. And clearly, like something wouldn't work, so he would try something else. Yeah. So he would try yeah. something else. Yep. 
And his most pressing issue was a urinary blockage, which may have come from a urinary tract infection. Sorry, major trigger warning for people who don't like medical talk. This is very gross. I can't. I'm going to I'm going to go for a second while Diana tells you the rest of this. I can't. I just can't. Here you go. Go ahead. Okay, now that it's just us. <laughs> Gouverneur couldn't pee, all right? And he was desperate for a solution to this problem, as you can imagine. And so he tried to clear the blockage himself. Oh, I can still hear it. Oh, God. Sorry, babe. By inserting a sliver of whalebone, possibly taken from one of his wife's corsets, into his own urethra. <laughs> And apparently this was not the first time Governor tried this operation. According to his fellow New York politician Rufus King, Governor tried a makeshift catheter some years earlier Uh, with a, quote, flexible piece of hickory. And that operation was a success. So he probably thought it would work again. But unfortunately, this time he was wrong. His inner tissue was torn and inflamed in the process. No, 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 no. He developed a penile infection, and on November 6th, 1816, he died in the very same room where he was born, saying, 64 years ago, it pleased the Almighty to call me into existence, here, on this spot, in this very room, and now shall I complain that he is pleased to call me hence? I mean, the guy can't pee, and he's still (laughs) being so lighthearted. Oh, okay. Sorry. Continue <laughs> the analysis. I was just saying with his last words, I was impressed because, you know, oh I mean, he can't he's in pain. He can't pee. He's dying. And he's still like, you know what? I I lived my life and I'm happy with it and I'm not complaining. I mean, just what a relentless optimist. Seriously. You know, he gets his leg ripped off. He's like, meh. You know, hey, mm-hmm. hey, you know what? Cool, I got this cool peg leg now. Hey, <laughs> hey, I got to save half my money on shoes, you know? <laughs> totally uh, buy jokes like that. He, like, burns his arm off. He's like, it's a good story. Right. Um, You know, and then he's dying, and he's like, well, what am I supposed to do, complain? I had a great life. Mm-hmm. Wow. I'm, Pretty cool guy. I, what, a mo- what a role model, you know? Right. And, you know, I mean, it must be said. If you live by the dick, you might die by the dick. <laughs> oh, man. And in this case, yes. that's exactly what happened. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's tough. To f- It is certainly tough to find colonial America, early America era role models. Yes. <laughs> because even the best of them mostly were like, okay, but you owned people. Yeah. You know, you like tried to. Or you were shitty to women. Or, or... you were shitty to women. Whatever. Or both. Mm-hmm. You owned women and you were shitty to them <laughs> yeah. on top of owning them, which is already shitty to them. Yeah, it's tough. But this guy checked all the boxes. Totally. I, I'm struggling to find anything wrong with him. Could be alive today and not get canceled. <laughs> and I have to say, I will say this, uh, something else just about how fair-minded he was, because he really was just very fair-minded. He cared a lot about equality um, in terms of like, he thought poor people were reptiles, okay? He had no respect for poor people. Oh, okay. And so, <laughs> well, there's like... there's one thing. <laughs> there's one thing, right? But he also was like, listen, I'm a gentleman. I am a property-owning gentleman, and that means... 
due to my social position, my job is to advocate for the human rights of other people. Wow. Even if they're poor and I think they're reptiles. Like, even then. <laughs> he's like, even then. Wow. So I think that's impressive in a way. I know it's, yeah. like, laughable that he thought they were reptiles. That's fucked right, up. But right. it's still, like... Even though I don't agree with these people, even though I don't think that they should have everything I have, which is a limitation of his personality, mm-hmm. um, he still was willing to fight for them to have the things that he had. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I think that's powerful character. Not that's everybody amazing. has that ability. No, no. And, you know, not to make it too one-sided, I think Anne is fascinating, too. Oh, I mean, yeah. boy, she sure went through it. You know, and she kind of came out an optimist, too. I mean, this lady was like homeless, living and sleeping mm-hmm. in tree branches, right? uh, you know, going from town to town while the whole country is like slandering her. And there's these horrible rumors going around, not to mention whatever she dealt with in that room. OK, you know, whatever was going on in there. Uh, you know, maybe it was a stillborn. That's psychologically so traumatizing. And- well, this is the, her story is that she grew up rich as fuck. She uh-huh. was beautiful and expected to marry probably pretty early in life because yeah. she had so many suitors and was so cute. So then she had a suitor who then died mm-hmm. when she was already pregnant by him. Yeah. If her story is real, obviously. Right, right. Then she had to suffer a stillborn of that baby, which would be another tragedy on top of the tragedy of losing the, the boyfriend. Right. And then... Now she's accused of being a slut for the next 20 years God, just or whatever, insane. like insane. I'm really glad that they found each other because Same. she deserved a She deserved a governor. She did. Yeah. And she outlived him by 21 years. She maintained her relationships with her family, including Judith, her sister. She took in Judith's son in 1815 when he was sick with tuberculosis and uh, she cared for him for three months. After governor died, she lived at Morrisania until her own death. She considered her son her richest treasure, and she spent most of her energy making sure that he got a good education. But thanks to John Randolph, unflattering rumors were still circulating about her, including that Governor Jr. wasn't actually Governor's son. Unbelievably rude. Uh, uh, Can he be our villain of the week? Seriously. You know what? Yes. John Randolph, villain Villain. of the week. She didn't take these rumors lying down. She used the press. She got attorneys involved. She got family friends advice to fight the rumors. And her efforts did do a lot to restore her reputation. And I hope crush John Randolph's, right? I hope. I think people probably started to kind of be like, this guy is so full of sour grapes. Relentless. Get over it. Right. And she also took on management of Governor's estate which had kind of suffered after his death because of mismanagement from one of his stupid nephews. Rude. Anne was like, hell no, 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 you're not about to leave my son a huge mess and a pile of debts, right? I'm not going to just let this thing crumble. Mm -hmm. So she got involved, she handled business, she got things kind of back on track. And when she died in 1837, Governor Jr. had St. Anne's Episcopal Church built along the Harlem River in her memory. And it's still there today. Mm Mm-hmm. Governor Jr. himself would go on to be a railroad executive and the founder of the original Republican Party. Yeah. That would have been the progressive Lincoln Republican Party. (laughs) The other Republican Party. (laughs) Right. The OG. Yeah. And I just have to say, you know, there's like a whole debate in this country about critical race theory or whatever and trying to teach our actual history about slavery and genocide of Native Americans and all the horrible things that have happened in this country. Right. Um, And there's just kind of a lot of pushback on that and wanting to, you know, more of a patriotic, which is 
propaganda, by the way. <laughs> if you're talking <laughs> about a patriotic education, you're talking about propaganda. Um, but anyway, I got mad because obviously we should be teaching all of this history. The real story, the real truth. Right. Is ugly. A lot of it is ugly yeah. and it doesn't have the best human behavior. Right. Um, but it's really important to cultivate a disgust of this behavior. And right. you can only do that by teaching it and going, by the way, we've decided this is wrong and right. not cool. Right. Um, but I also hate it as a white person because it erases all the best white people that we have to offer. Right. I mean, if you don't teach slavery, you can't teach about abolitionists who were in their own time standing up against a really culture, a whole culture. Right. I mean, showing, contrasting someone like Governor Morris against someone like Thomas Jefferson right. uh, really shows us that people were different. It also shows us that it wasn't just what you had to do back then or just the way people thought. There were people actively saying, hey, this is bad. Let's stop it. And that means the other guys were hearing that and saying no. Mm-hmm. So that's that's really important. And it needs to be OK to say, hey, Thomas Jefferson did some cool shit. Yeah. Thomas Jefferson did some things that we can still be very thankful for today. Like, uh, you know, those those houses with the columns out front, <laughs> you know, hey, the Library of Congress, Library of Congress, lots of great things. And also he was like a really bad person who owned people yes. like enslaved human beings. Um, those need to be OK to know together. Like we're we're complex enough thinkers to be able to handle that. Yeah. And I think that it, God, I don't know. Maybe that's why Governor Morris isn't as well known through history because they're like, eh, we start talking about him then everybody else looks bad. I mean, that's, I kind of wonder that. I mean, again, he doesn't look for glory, so it's not like his name's all over a bunch of shit. Right. But it does seem like, I mean, he had a lot of really important things (laughs) that he was doing to frame this country. And totally left out. Right. Insane. Right. Maybe they were also like, we'll also have to talk about all these women he isn't doing. <laughs> we can't talk about that <laughs> yeah. in school. Oh, man. Imagine in fifth grade them being like, and and then his friend thought he said he wished his dick had been ripped off by the carriage instead. Whoa, really? You know what? I would have taken a much stronger interest in American history at an earlier age. Okay, this is like the trick of teaching all of the curse words first in the foreign language class, and then you have <laughs> yeah. everyone's attention for the rest of the year. Right, right. <laughs> and yeah, Governor needs his own musical, so... Seriously. I'm not a musical writer, but shit, should we just get to work? Um, we are musical writers, by the way, <laughs> and one day you'll hear it, um, but it is not this day. Nope. Uh, <laughs> but look, I'm amazed by this story. I love uh, Kevin Ear Morris. I, it was so joyful and fun and hilarious. Like, he's got such a sharp wit. Also, the most horrific thing I've ever heard. <laughs> um, I, I, I'm so glad he was optimistic in death because otherwise I would say this is the most tragic and horrific death I've ever heard of, especially after surviving so much. I know, right? I, mean, I was chilling out in France at like the worst time to be a rich guy in France, mm-hmm. you know? Very true. French Revolution, man. Also, like that's so much more complicated I know. Than you think it is when you when you start digging into it, like you know, I always think it's just lemmes. You know, everybody's singing <laughs> in the streets. Uh, there's the the bad guys are the rich people, the good guys are the poor people. Um, I guess lemmes is you know a little more, a little uglier than that. But True. still, I feel like it's fairly two dimensional when we're like 
reminiscing, romanticizing the French Revolution. Yeah. But uh, there were some heinous things going on. It was a very gruesome. Anyway, that's a whole other episode and a whole other story. Right. But it is that weird trick that time plays, that history plays on you, where, you know, when you find out that um, Barbara Walters and Martin Luther King Jr. and Anne Frank were all born in the same year. Right. You know, that kind of thing is how I feel about the revolution. Yeah. um, Because it just seems like the American Revolution is a whole period of time. Every founder lived and died within that period of time. (laughs) (laughs) That's it. And they were all 60 years old the whole time it was happening. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) When in fact, we were talking about some young men, some old men. We're talking about um, people who then had to just be lawyers afterward. And I'm sure there were plenty of younger men who was like, I'm so sick of hearing about the damn revolution, everything you did in the revolution. You know what I mean? (laughs) Like I was just picturing that in, in the 1790s where everyone's like, God, I'm always hearing about the damn uh-huh. revolution. Like, <laughs> just... yeah, that like, well, now I got to go do something else. Now, I guess mm-hmm. it's like that Act Two of Hamilton, which is not as good as Act One, because you know you get past the revolution and you're just like, oh, okay, I guess they're all just lawyers I'm talking, about, talking about papers, writing papers now. Okay, it's less mm-hmm. exciting, but I'm yeah. into it. Yeah, it's Look, true. Still hey, a good act, but sure. But also, side note: Act Two of almost every single musical ever written is worse than <laughs> Act One. You know, you've got because you probably got all these fun songs in your head, and that's when you sit down to write it, and you write them all, and you're like halfway through the show, and you're like, "Oh, I guess I have to come up with something else." <laughs> so all the inspiration, all the excitement is in Act One every single time. Yeah, and if you have a rebuttal to that, yes, you can email us. Let's hear it. <laughs> Please do email us, actually, especially if you have any thoughts about Governor or musicals or Hamilton. (laughs) Uh, Or if you're Lin-Manuel Miranda. If you're Lin-Manuel Miranda, we probably will tweet from our Twitter account to him. So please go like and boost that signal so you can find out what the fuck was going on through his head. Seriously. To leave this great guy out. Um, Our email address is romance at iheartmedia.com. Or if you want to reach us on social media, again, like, please go... Please go like this tweet that we're going to send <laughs> to Lin-Manuel Miranda. Uh, you can get us Twitter or, or Instagram at uh, I'm at Oh Great It's Eli. I'm at Dynamite Boom. And the show where we'll be adding all the celebrities that we know and love dearly uh, is at Ridic Romance. Yes. So thank you guys so much for coming in for this wacky episode. Yeah, so glad to hopefully not introduce Governor Morris to you. I hope you've heard of him before. But if not, I'm glad you know about him now because I am. Yeah, me too. All right, and we will catch you on the next one. Can't wait. So long, friends, it's time to go. Thanks for listening to our show. Tell your friends, neighbors, uncles, and aunts to listen to our show, Ridiculous Romance. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. 
To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Plus. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. Hey, guys. Back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck, yeah. And some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh, <laughs> ah, love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, can a girl go shopping? Yeah, baby. Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota.